Today we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 1. You can go ahead, you can turn there. Uh, as Mark uh, prayed toward the end of his prayer, I think it was his prayer time as opposed to talking. Um, this, psalm 1 is a familiar psalm. Uh, it's like a Psalm 23 where you, know, you can begin it and lots of people can say, yeah, I heard of that one. Uh, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and so on. Well, Psalm 1 is similar to that. The Psalms were the hymn book of the nation of Israel. And so these psalms, though for us, a lot of them have been put to music, we don't sing them all as songs. Well, the, the Jewish people did. Uh, in fact, the, the term psalms, really in sort of a, a very broken down way, it's a word which means praises. And so these were the praises of the nation of Israel. And, and what we will discover as we make our way through them, even in small chunks as we make our way through, is that they are songs that praised God in every situation of life. And they're clearly, as we'll see, they're clearly inspired by God. They have the ability, somewhere in there, you, you're in there, you're studying, depending on where you are at this point in time in your life, where your heart is at this point in time in life, you can find a song that resonates with where you are. And they're divinely inspired in that way. They have the ability to communicate what's on your heart in a way that perhaps you weren't able to put into words, but the Lord has put them into words. And you're like, yes, that's it. That's what, that's what I've been going through. That's what I've been thinking. That's what I wanted to say. Well, the Psalms are able to do that. They praise the Lord in every situation of life. The, the hymn book of the nation of Israel. In fact, in actuality, there, it's five hymn books of the nation of Israel, because as you'll see, uh, for instance, look today at the very beginning of verse of, uh, of chapter 1. You see at the top there how it says book 1? That's not a title that was added by the publisher of your Bible. That was there in the original. And you would find it again if you skip over to Psalm 42. It'll say book 2 and so on and so forth. There's actually five of these hymn books that were assembled by the Jewish people throughout the centuries, really, that served the purpose of serving as the hymn book of the nation. They were written over a period of about a thousand years. And so it's not one person sitting down, I'm going to write a hymn book, you know, and writing out uh, 150 of these songs. But these are songs, and the Jews probably wrote a hundred other songs. But these were the particular songs that resonated with the people and made it into, if you will, the hymn book of the nation. The majority of them were written by David. King David wasn't always a king. Shepherd David, servant David, uh, husband David, father David. David, in different stages of his life, we know, has written 75 of these psalms. His name is given to us. It'll say, a psalm of David, and then it'll go on from there and be the psalm that he wrote. And so David, we know, God calls him a man after his own heart, seemingly different from a lot of other people, unique in that regard. He's a man after God's own heart, and he was a man that was uniquely gifted with the ability to communicate what was on his heart in song back to the Lord or as a song that was, led, that was designed to lead the people uh, in praise. David, he wrote 75 of them. Some of the other psalms, they weren't all written by David. A fellow named Asaph, he wrote 12 of them. The sons of Korah, they were, they're a band. They teamed up. They wrote 10 of them. 
King Solomon, uh, he wrote one at some point in his life, either before becoming king or after. Moses wrote one of these psalms. And we're also told there was a fellow by the name of Ethan the Ezraite who wrote one of these psalms. Forty-nine of the psalms, however, no name attributed to them. They're just anonymous psalms that made their way around the Jewish people and into this holy hymn book. You'll be interested to note, perhaps you won't be, but I was, and so I'm going to share it. It's The Psalms are the most quoted book from the Old Testament that are found in the New Testament. There's 216 Old Testament quotes in the New Testament, uh, excuse me, 219, 116 of them come from the Psalms. And so they had a, probably like any song, they had the ability to stick in the head and in the hearts of people. Uh, and because they did, they often were pulled upon and quoted uh, in the New Testament. I think the Psalms are beautiful. I think they're powerful. I think uh, that part of that is, is because, as many of us have discovered, they can put to words the cries of the human heart. And so some of these Psalms that we're going to look at are going to, well, all of them, they're going to cover the gamut of feelings that human beings have, particularly human beings that want to walk with God, that want to know God, that struggle in life. And sometimes they're feeling great and other times they're down. Sometimes they're filled with faith and other times they're wondering, is this all real? They, they cover the gamut of feelings of the human heart. So some of them, grief. They're psalms about grief, and they're good ones to go to when you yourself are struggling with grief. Some are about joy. Some are about hate, believe it or not. Some are about compassion for others. Some is about fear. So they cover the gamut of human uh, feelings that the heart can feel. They're intense, high levels of emotion, intense highs and intense, intense lows. John Corson, he said it this way. He said, there is a psalm for every high and for every sigh, and everything in between. Uh, and that indeed is the reality. Now the Psalms are poetry. They're songs, but they're poetry. There's five books in our Bible that fit into that classification. Uh, surprising, the book of Job is considered a book of poetry. I, never, I, I have a hard time seeing it as such, but that's what they tell me, I trust them. Uh, but the Proverbs, that feels like it fits there. The book of Ecclesiastes, the book of the Song of Solomon, all of those are poetic, and the Psalms are as well. So they are poetry. But they're Hebrew poetry, which is significantly different from your typical American or Western poetry. And so we're not going to find here things like roses are red and violets are blue. You're not going to see that in the book of Psalms or in the pages of the book of Psalms. In fact, you're probably not going to find a lot of words that rhyme at all. And they probably, well, that's because it was in Hebrew. They probably didn't rhyme in the Hebrew language either. And so their poetry is a little bit different than our poetry that we would be familiar with. Poetry to the Jews was not so much about rhyming words as it was about rhyming ideas or as it was about rhyming thoughts. Hebrew poetry, that rhythm, remember this one here? You learned it probably. 1492, there's a nice rhythm to it. It flows. Anyone not know that? You didn't learn that in eighth grade uh, or third grade, whatever grade they taught it? Well, there's a rhythm to it. Well, you don't have a rhythm of words in Hebrew poetry. As I said, you have a rhythm of ideas or what we'll see, we'll see it today, 
you have a rhythm of contrasting ideas where one is compared with another or contrasted with another. And that's how they achieve their rhythm. As you go from this to this to this to this to this to this and so on. There's something that the Psalms are uh, broken up into what is referred to as parallelism. And you have three types of those. This is part of our intro and our understanding of the book of Psalms. There, one type is what's called a synonymous psalm. And a synonymous psalm achieves that rhythm that I was describing in that the second half of the verse, we would say roses are red, violets are blue. In their instance, the second half of the verse, it repeats the identical thought, but in a different way. Are you with me? That's called a synonymous psalm. Psalm 27.1 is a, is a, for instance, of this, an example of this. It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my strength of my life, is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? You see, he's describing the Lord, and he does so, he's describing the same thing, same one, in two different ways. That's a synonymous psalm. We'll look at them as we make our way through and no doubt point them out. The second type of psalm or style of psalm, again with this idea of parallelism, is the antithetic psalm. And an antithetic psalm is one in which there's a contrast that is stated in that second clause. The first statement and then followed by the contrast. Psalm 1-6, today's psalm, portion of it is, an example of this, it says, for the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. You see the contrast? And then finally, there is what is called the synthetic psalm. And this is where the first clause is developed uh, or enriched by the second clause. And it's done so either by explaining the consequences of the first clause or an expansion of the idea of the first clause. In Psalm 23, most of us know it. This is what it says. The Lord is my shepherd, and because he is my shepherd, I'm Greg's adding, I shall not want. You see the consequence? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He'll, it'll go on in that psalm. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And then to expand on that idea, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And this is an example of that third type, the synthetic psalm. And so this morning, everybody got it? We are having a quiz on that uh, at the end of class. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 1 together. It begins with the words, Book 1. As I said, five hymn books in uh, the, what we call the Book of Psalms that were compiled together. This one will run all the way to chapter 41, the first of the hymn books. Let's read the entire thing together. Follow along. It starts in verse 1. It says, Now blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and he's like a leaf that does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will, per will perish. So again, remember in Hebrew literature, or in Hebrew poetry, Rather than rhyming words, we have rhyming ideas or contrasting ideas. 
And it's that, that, the contrast of ideas that we have in Psalm 1. We have the comparison between the godly man and the wicked man. The godly man or the, and the ungodly man, as he's sometimes referred to in some versions. And so the godly man, he's going to cover in verses 1 to 3. And as we'll see, he's the one that is blessed. The ungodly man, the wicked man, he'll cover in verses 4 through 6. And he's going to be the one that will perish. He's going to contrast these two individuals. Let's look at the first, the godly man. Starting again, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, he never actually labels this individual as he does the wicked one in verse 4. But there's a contrast that is here. So if the, the one is wicked, the contrast, the other, is going to be the godly man. And so he gives us here the godly man. He describes the godly man without actually assigning him a title. And he says of that godly man, he says, he is blessed. Now he's going to return and describe the condition of the man's life when he gets down to verse 3. But he simply begins here with the word blessed. And the word blessed, we have it in the New Testament as well, uh, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, blessed are the this, blessed are the that, you're familiar with it. It's a term in both the New and the Old Testament, in both the Greek and the Hebrew language, it's a term which doesn't necessarily refer to a halo over someone's head and, and lights coming down from heaven, oh, and that's a blessed person, God is with them. It simply is a term which could be translated as happy. And so we could read this as, oh, how happy is the man. Now, certainly that goes beyond, like, you know, a smile on your face. That's not what it's referring to. The Hebrew word that is translated blessed, it carries additionally with it these ideas. And so when you see blessed, you're thinking, oh, how happy. But you're also thinking contentment, fulfillment, satisfaction. All of those are ideas, concepts, emotions that are wrapped up in this term, oh, how blessed is the man. And so it speaks then of the individual that's at peace. It speaks of the individual that's at rest, even in the midst of sometimes the difficult circumstances of life. And so the author begins, and he simply says, let me just get it out from the beginning, blessed is the godly man, he says here. He goes on, and his wording is, blessed is the man, uh, man or woman. But he doesn't say, blessed is the king, or blessed is the scholar, or blessed are the rich, or blessed are the beautiful. But he simply says, blessed is the man. And it's this state of blessing, this contentment, this fulfillment, this satisfaction, this rest, it's a state that is attainable by all. And oh, how I appreciate that. That the godly man or woman doesn't have to be the scholar, doesn't have to be the ruler, doesn't have to be the richest, doesn't have to be the most powerful. They simply need to be a man or a woman or a young person. And every one of us in here, we qualify for that. It's attainable. That blessing is attainable by all. And oftentimes, the, our world, it wrongly concludes, and I think many times we buy into it, but oftentimes the, wor the world wrongly concludes that such rest, such peace, 
such satisfaction, such contentment, such fulfillment, that it is only attained by the privileged few. When in reality, what we see here is blessed is the man. That it's just as attainable by the poor, the forgotten, the obscure, as by those names, those figures that become something in history, so to speak. So the garbage man that walks with God can be blessed, have peace, fulfillment, satisfaction, and contentment. The college professor, the elected official, the homemaker, the teacher, the student, the retiree, any person in any walk of life can have this peace. It's attainable for all of us. It can be found by each and every one of us, no matter our state, stage in life. And so he says, blessed is the man. Now, who is this blessed man? Well, he goes on. He says, blessed is the man who walks not in. He's going to go on. He's going to talk about that. And so the, this speaks to the practice of the man of God or the woman of God. There, are, there will be certain things that the godly man or woman will do, and there will be certain things that the godly man or woman will not do, that they will not get themselves involved in. There are certain behaviors that the person whose life is, that is marked by peace and joy and contentment and rest, there are certain behaviors that that individual will be about, and there are other behaviors and practices that they will not allow themselves to engage in. If you will, it's the secret to that life of blessing, that life of peace and contentment and rest and satisfaction and so on. And so he begins, the author is, he begins with the negative side of that practice, if you will, of the blessed man. That, and by that, what I mean is those things that he will not do. Then in verse 2, he's going to talk about the things that he does do. So again, verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There is a way the blessed man will not walk. There is a path the blessed man will not stand in. And there is a seat that the blessed man will not settle into. Notice, if you will, the progression. Really, I think it's a digression. You're going from walking along to stopping and standing to taking a seat and settling in. There's a digression to sin in so many ways. And the place where it begins is the paths in which we walk. He says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Don't think it can't happen to you. You're doing great right now, this day. Here you are, Sunday morning. You got up early, despite your lingering turkey coma, and you're here because you knew you wanted to be in the place uh, with the people of God and the word of God. Very easily, any one of us in this room could go down that path and start walking and then stop and stand and soon find ourselves seated in the councils of the wicked. And so digging into this passage here, I want to look at the first one. He says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Now, a lot of versions use the word ungodly there. Um, wicked, ungodly, they both fit. I prefer a bit ungodly. And, and it's just simple, a preference, and here's why. It's not based on, like, well, this word is used 58 times. This is used, it's nothing like that. It's just simply, when I see wicked, I think of people killing their kittens. I think of people doing horrible atrocities. I think of people doing horrible things. That person is just wicked. But the word that is used here can also simply mean un, it's ungodly. 
And ungodly just mean, simply means the absence of God. God is not present in that person's life. And I think that goes on to describe it. Because a lot of times we can live life as if we're ungodly and not be doing anything wrong on the outside. And nobody's looking at our life and saying, I can't believe you killed kittens or things like that. But we can live our lives in such a way where we give no thought to God. And we're just going about doing our thing, unmindful of who God is or what God might want to say or speak into that life. And so, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, the absence of God, the devoid of God. Who are the ungodly? They are those who leave God out of their life and their decisions. Do you do that sometimes, many times? Who are the ungodly? They're, they are those who have no fear of God before their eyes. They'll go, they'll do what they want to do, and, well, I don't care what God has to say about it. He should be happy I came to church on a Sunday. And I should have some freedom to do what I want to do. Who are the ungodly? They are those who live as if God does not exist. And so we see the first behavior then that the author points to about the godly man or woman is that they have conditioned themselves to steer clear of the counsel of the ungodly. They've conditioned themselves to stay clear of those that are without God. And many believers, many, and I won't only say Christians because the Jews of the Old Testament as well, but many followers of God, believers of God, fail at this point. And the reason why is because we fail to even consider if the counsel that we are receiving, if the counsel that we are using to make our decisions is godly or ungodly at all. We're not even taking that into consideration. We're just simply walking in, well, that sounds good. Well, it sounds good to whom? Does it sound good to this is popular opinion? Does it sound good that it resonates with your being or something like that? Does God have anything to say about this? Does God care about this at all? Have you considered the counsel of God? No. Well, then you've made your decision in the absence of the counsel of God. And that's what the ungodly do. And so if that's how we go about making decisions again and again and again in our lives, don't expect to be a life that is, ha have a life that is blessed or at peace or content or satisfied or fulfilled. All those other things that the term itself means. And so the person, the man of God, the woman of God, will take into consideration the counsel of God. They hear it, they'll hear the advice or the theories about their problems from the world and how the world would go about solving those, and they will run them through the is it called a sieve, this thing, you know, with the stuff that goes through on the other end? A sieve with a V? They'll run it through that, and they'll see, does godliness come out of this? Does it remain? The truly blessed person steers clear of the counsel of the ungodly. Secondly, he goes on, he says, Blessed is the man who, and I'll just add some words here, does not stand in the way of sinners. Now, this isn't, stands in the way in the sense of blocking their path. It's in the sense of becoming a part of their group, taking part in their dialogue, drawing near, uh, if you will. The ungodly, here they're called sinners, they have a path where they're going to stand, and the righteous man knows, look, I don't belong on that path. I certainly shouldn't be wandering down that path, and I shouldn't be stopping and considering. The path, it speaks of a, a way, a road, a direction. 
And the righteous man will be traveling in a different direction from sinners. If we walk in the counsel of the ungodly, soon we will find ourselves standing in the way of sinners. And we know, as Jesus said in the book of Matthew, that way leads to destruction. Here's what Jesus said, either by the narrow gate, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is easy, that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow, the way is hard, that leads to life. And few there are that find it. Two different paths altogether. Finally, the altar says, Blessed is the man that does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Maybe your version says scornful. This is a term that applies to the person that openly disparages or mocks another. And in this case, we're talking about mocking God and mocking his word. And so you have a person that went from being perhaps around the things of God and mildly interested in the things of God to being openly scornful of God and the things of God. And the path is presented to us. They began by just giving heed to ungodly counsel. Soon they found themselves interacting with, maybe fellowshipping with ungodly counselors, and before long they themselves became those ungodly counselors. And so the godly man goes back to the, the start of the slippery slope. They recognize where that path leads, and they don't get on that path at all. So that's what they don't do. That's the negative prescription here, what they don't do. But we know as Christians, the life of the Christian is not just what we don't do. That would be a pretty crummy life, wouldn't it? I don't do that. I don't, don't do what do you do? Oh, nothing. I'm not allowed to do anything. I'm, I'm hoping to go to heaven. You know, or something. That sounds great. The life of the Christian is not just what we don't do, but it's the positive things that we do do. And he touches on that in verse 2. So one again, in context, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The author uses the word law. Now, in common vernacular here, we associate the word law with the rules that govern a society. That's the laws of society. In our biblical understanding, we often associate the word law with the first five books of Moses, particularly the book of Leviticus, the book of uh, Deuteronomy, which means second law, uh, restating the law a second time. We, we often think of, when we th read the word law, we think of the Mosaic law. Well, here, the author that's not what he has in mind as he writes this. Here, the author is simply referring to the instructions of God. And this phrase, the law of the Lord, it's used again and again many, many times in the book of Psalms, and it's designed to describe really the entirety of God's word, God's message to you and I. That, that's what the law here is referring to. What does God have to say on these things? How has God spoken on these things? The ungodly individual, as we saw, paid no attention to God and his ways. But in contrast here, and remember Hebrew poetry, it rhymes by having ideas here and sometimes contrasting ideas. In contrast, the godly man or woman delights his or herself in God's ways. The ungodly pays no attention, but the godly man or woman delights themselves in God's ways. And they set their heart and their mind upon those ways. And so he says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. 
And so the mark of a life that is at peace with God is delight, meditation, and continuance in the law of the Lord. But I don't like to read. Well, you need to figure it out. All right, I understand if you, you can't read, if you have difficulty reading, I'm sure there's folks that, that can probably help uh, that you can improve in that. But if it's just, I just don't really enjoy it, I get tired, I get sleepy, that's okay. Read as much as you can before you doze off or whatever. It's just something you have to get past. You have to get yourself into the word of God. Every one of us that desires to have that peace, contentment, fulfillment, satisfaction, and all of that, get yourself into the word of God. Well, I just like to listen to Bible teachers. Well, that's pretty good. That's better than sitting around watching reruns or something on TV. But you need to get into the word of God. And you need to have the insight of God's Holy Spirit ministering to your heart for your circumstance, not through another individual. There's a place for that, what we're doing right now. But there's also a more important place where you sit with God's word and let God's word minister to your heart and speak to your heart. And you may not every understand every single thing you read on every single page. And as you go through it a second time, five years later, you might understand a little bit more and you might understand a little bit more later on. Certainly is the case. But keep reading. Keep reading the word. Keep ingesting the word into your life. You'll become familiar with the ways of God You'll become familiar with the heart of God. And I, I think maybe one of the most important things is you begin to get a sense of how God works in this world. And I, I find the more that I've studied the scripture over the years and even just simply read the scripture over the years, not like dug into so I could learn what this means or that means, but the more I just sit with God's word and let God's word, if you will, sort of wash over me, there is a sense of God, you're sovereign, you're in control. And you've seen all this stuff before, and you know, and I can just rest. Remember, that's what blessed means. Just rest in him that he's got it all in his hands, and he's in sovereign control of it. And you can take a deep breath, and you can move forward with your life. The, the ungodly individual doesn't do that, but the mark of the life that is at peace does. Delights in the word of God, meditates on the word of God, and does it day and night. That doesn't mean... You know, I took 10 minutes in the morning, I took 10 minutes at night, I do it day and night. Day and night, the idea is constantly. And so when he's mowing the lawn, or she's mowing the lawn, or when she or he is at the grocery store, or when they're cooking, or when they're sitting at their desk, or when they're going to the lavatory, or whatever it may be, meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. Sometimes you may have to put your phone down, friends. You may have to stop distracting. Uh-oh, this is getting serious. Some of you want to get up and leave, go to the bathroom. Uh, come back when I'm done this little part. We're distracted. We have no time to think about other things because we're just scrolling along looking at something else or getting ourselves distracted with something else. We don't have time to consider, huh, that verse I read this morning. Let me think. And you think about it. That's, and I'll talk about it more. That's meditation. First, let me look at this word delight. A lot of times we think of delight as something that just sort of happens, that it's a natural response to something. And so you walk in and all the desserts are out on the table and you are delighted. It's just a natural response. Look at all the carrot cake that is there for us to enjoy, whatever it might be. You see a beautiful sunset and you're drawn to it and you're like, oh man, that's beautiful. Thank you, Lord. You know, I delight in that sunset. But the word means more than just kind of 
what has happened inside of you, the reaction you've had to something. The word that is used here, it means, or it includes in its meaning, the idea of something that is highly valued. And both of those ideas fit here. And so you've, maybe you've experienced, you've opened up God's word, you read something, you go, oh, it's just so good. Lord, you know exactly what I needed. You ministered to my heart exactly as I needed you to minister to my heart. And you delight. You're responding to the good experience that you just had. But I'm sure there's a lot of us that can attest here that's not always the feeling we get when we sit with God's word. There are times early in the morning, you're yawning, the coffee's not, it's not working, or whatever, you realize your husband put decaf in instead of calf, and you know, now you have a headache all day or whatever. But there are times where you read God's word and you're kind of like, all right, cool. You know, and you put it away and you got to get on with your, there's no, you know, there's not, you know, none of it. You got it, she's with me. All right, it's just, okay, cool, thanks, Lord, and you have it. There's no immediate response. In those instances, it's helpful to see this word delight from the other perspective, and that is highly valued. The godly man, the blessed man, the, the peaceful, content, restful, satisfied man or woman of God is an individual that highly values God's word. And what that means is they make it a priority in their life. And they take great care to guard that priority. Because things happen, don't they? Where you're all set, you're ready, you're going to get up early, you're going to do this. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh man, like there was a leak. I can't be sitting having a quiet time while there's water all over the floor here. I got to go clean it up. And so you have to put away your, your quiet time to go do that. And everyone, that's fair, right? Everybody agrees with that? Do you carve out different time then? to make up for the quiet time you missed. Or you just push, I'll get to that tomorrow. Well, what things do you not carve out? And what things do you carve out and make time for? Well, the things that you highly value. You're going to find time to have dinner. You're going to find time to go to the bathroom. You're going to find time probably to take a shower or whatever it might be. You're going to find time for those things. What are the things that you place such a high value on that you won't let them go by? Well, the blessed man places such a high value on the word of God, knowing the impact that the word of God will have on their life, they will not let it go by. He goes on, he says here, they meditate on it day and night. They ponder the word of God. Again, day and night, not just a little bit in the morning, a little bit in the evening, but throughout their day, their heart is set on God and his ways. And what does God have to say about this? All the time, continually, without stopping, is the meaning of that phrase, day and night. And so this person here doesn't just read it or hear it, maybe they listen to it or something like that, doesn't just read it or hear it and then forget it. What did you read this morning? I, I don't know. I have no idea. I sat there for 30 minutes and I know I read something, but I haven't really given it that much thought. My eyes just ran over the words. That's not what the blessed man of God does with the word of God. They don't just hear it and forget it. Rather, they, they take time to think about it and its implications for their lives. They meditate on it. They ponder it. Now, in the Eastern philosophies and religions, the goal of meditation is to empty the mind, get everything out of the mind, and then the gods, whatever that might be or whatever they might be, can then speak into it. As a matter of fact, that's dangerous. 
It's dangerous to empty the mind in such a way. I think in reality, it opens a person up to deception, the deception of their own thoughts. I think it can even open up a person to the deception of the demonic. When we completely empty our mind in the, uh, the, the vein, the realm there, of the Eastern philosophies. In Hebrew and Christian meditation, the goal is not to empty your mind, but to fill your mind. The goal, you can empty it, if you will, of your worries and your troubles and your difficulties and your to-do list. You can empty it of that, but you want to fill it with the word of God. And that is done by carefully thinking about what it is you've just read or you're considering. Each word, each phrase, taking time to take what you've read and applying it to your circumstances. Not just a simple, like, yeah, that, that's very interesting. Oh, good. Ooh, this will be great next time we play Bible trivia. I have some information I learned. That's not what we want to do with the Word of God. We don't want to just keep digging into it to search, finding the secrets and all this kind of stuff. We want to apply it to our lives. How does this apply to my life? Many people effectively pray back the Word of God to him. And so they, they take it from what they have read, they apply it to themselves, and then they begin to pray about it. Lord, you talk about this here. I want to see this in my life. Lord, would you create this in me? They begin to pray it back to the Lord. Medi they meditate. Now, meditate is a very figurative word. Hopefully, everyone ate long enough ago. I'll describe it a little bit to you. It paints quite the picture. In the original, it was the word that was used by the Hebrew people to describe a cow that was chewing its cud. Now, a cud, if you're not familiar is partially digested food, regurgitated back up, and then chewed over again. That's the disgusting part of our time together today, where you, you bring it back and you chew it again, and you go, hmm, mm, I didn't taste that the first time. And you, you swallow it again. And the, the cow will chew their cud really throughout the day, their morning breakfast throughout the day. They'll regurgitate it back up on multiple occasions and chew over it again and again and again. And that's the word that the author chose to use to describe what we are to be doing with the word of God. We are to be chewing the cud. We're to call to mind what we've considered earlier a second time or a third time or a fourth time or even beyond that. Something we've perhaps previously mulled over, bring it back up and mull it over again. Going back over what we've previously read, calling to mind a portion or a phrase of a passage and the implications for that in our lives. Many times I, I, I kind of think of it this way. I wouldn't say I call it this like I wrote some book on it or something, but where I'll, I'll kind of take a, a phrase and in that phrase is an entire sermon to myself. And so, for instance, there, there's a verse in the Song of Solomon in which it simply says, and my own vineyard I have not kept. And that little phrase is enough to preach an entire sermon to me. And the way that it does, my own vineyard have I not kept. Here I am, I'm trying to help all kinds of other people and talking with all kinds of other people. And how am I doing? How's my heart doing? And one phrase can preach a whole sermon to myself and, and serve to remind me, you need to take time for yourself. You need to get into the word for yourself. You need to let God minister to you and challenge you. Don't read his word so that you have something to share with somebody else. Apply it to your own life. All from that little phrase there. I encourage you to do something like that in your own life. You know, you can do something where you take the events of a biblical character. 
The events of a guy like a Joseph or a Moses or a Samson or a David or King Saul or whomever, and you take one of these people and you sort of mull over their life story or the circumstances that they had gone through, and you begin to look for parallelisms in your own life. And so have you been wronged like a Joseph has been wronged and sold off into slavery? Well, you probably weren't sold off into slavery, but you may have been wrong, uh, unjustly treated wrongly. And then you begin to look, and how did Joseph respond to that? And how did God enable Joseph to respond to that? And what did God do through the way Joseph responded to that? How can I respond differently? And you begin to apply this to your own life. And all of that comes by meditating on the word of God. You didn't just read the story, learn the facts. You mold over them, you chewed them, and you applied it to your life. And when we do that, and we do that day and night, it becomes a part of who we are in every season of our life, all the time in our lives, over our lifetimes. When we do that, then the word of God becomes our counselor, not the ungodly. Remember in the beginning? He's walks not in the paths of the, or whatever it said you you read it you're with me or the counsel of the ungodly the word of god becomes then our counselor and so then what happens to a man or a woman that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly that does not stand in the path of sinners that does not sit in the seat, seat of scoffers but who instead delights in the law of the lord and meditates on the law that law day and night what happens to them well, we've already learned from the first word, they're blessed. They're a person whose life is marked by happiness and peace and rest and satisfaction and contentment. But the author goes on to further describe the effect it has on that person's life. Look at verse 3. It says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in, in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, in all that he does, he prospers. The man or the woman that is separated from sin, from sin, and to the scripture, they have all the qualities of a strong, healthy, fruitful tree. And not just any tree, but notice, a tree with the best possibility of circumstances that it's going to survive, and not just survive, but thrive. Because as it says there, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. Planted. He has a root system. He's firmly planted. And so when the storms of life come, and the storms of life will come to everyone, the godly man, the ungodly man, everyone's going to experience the difficulties of life. And so when the storms of life come, the godly man is firmly planted. And so the winds are going to blow, and the rain's going to come down. It's going to be a difficult circumstance here. But because they are rooted and firmly planted, they, they, will, they will not have the effect of toppling him. Make sense? It'll stand in the storm. He's a tree. He likens him to a tree that is firmly planted. And because he's firmly planted by streams of water, notice, he, we know, I mean, we can do the math. He has a constant supply of nourishment and refreshment. The water there. They discovered a method of irrigation in Israel um, not too long ago, like 60, 70 years ago or something like that. A fella went on vacation. He had a hose that was running to his apple tree or whatever it might be. I don't know what it is. The pomegranate. We'll say that. It sounds more biblical. 
All right, and he had this little fruit tree in his backyard, and he had a little hose there that was running to it. And once a day, he would go out, and he would turn on the hose, and it would water it, and then he would come, and he would turn it off, and he'd do his thing. Well, he went away on vacation. So he went, and he turned the hose off, but he didn't turn it off enough. And it was just a teeny little trickle. And he came back after two weeks, two and a half weeks, and this tree was doing magnificent. And they, they learned something called, or they developed something from that called drip irrigation. Uh, and it really works. And now farmers all over the world use this drip irrigation, just a constant, stri- constant bit of just a teeny little bit. Well, that's just what a little teeny drop can do and the effect it can have. Imagine being a tree that is planted firmly by a stream of water, a constant supply of nourishment, a constant supply of refreshment. The result then being, as he says, it yields uh, its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. I'm reminded of John chapter 15 where Jesus sat with his disciples and he said to them this, he said, abide in me. They've been walking around for years. This is the last few weeks of Jesus's earthly life before he would be crucified and rise again and ascend into heaven and thus their relationship with him changed. And he'd been with them, he'd been talking with them, explaining to them, showing them, sending them out. They've been doing all they're doing. And then as Jesus is wrapping it all up, these are the instructions he gives them. And I think they're very good instructions for you and I, obviously. They're from the scripture. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And then a few verses later he'll say, And by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And so if your thinking was, oh, I don't need to bear a lot of fruit, like, you know, let other people bear the fruit. No, you were created to glorify your Father in heaven. That's why every person on earth was created, ultimately, is to bring glory to God. And how do we bring glory to God? Well, he tells us there in verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, proving to be my disciples. God wants us to bear fruit. It brings him glory when we do. Again, it's the reason why we were created. And so, again, those words, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. A tree out in the desert wilderness is not going to bear much fruit it may happen to you know bear this bear that from some of the life that had been in it but a tree out in the desert is not going to bear much fruit but the tree that is firmly planted beside the streams of water will do so indeed and what is the fruit that the firmly planted believer will produce well certainly i think it applies to the impact that each one of us can have and will have on the lives of others we talk about uh, you know, you'll know a tree by its fruit, or you talk about a ministry and the fruit of that ministry in your own personal life, or if you were uh, evangelizing other people and the people that are impacted by that, you might say they're the fruit of your ministry. And I think it, it can apply in that outward sense to things. But I think even more importantly, because I think the one will significantly impact and continually impact the other, I think more importantly, And what is more fitting to the context of our passage and Jesus' words in John chapter 15, it's a reminder here of the fruit of God's Holy Spirit. Not just what's happening through our lives on the outside, but what's happening inside of our lives. Commenting on that fruit of the Spirit, Paul, he wrote 
that the fruit of the Spirit, of God's Spirit, in the life of the believer is love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's gentleness, it's uh, faithfulness, and it's self-control. That that's what's being created in a person. And so he it is that abides in me that will bear much fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All of those things. What's that sound like? Well, that sounds like a blessed person, doesn't it? That sounds like a person that is at peace and at rest and is content and is satisfied and is happy and has a joy. We're talking about the same thing here. And the answer is, the secret is, abide in the vine. Stay firmly planted by the streams of water, which we know to be God and his Holy Spirit. He goes on, he says, that his leaf shall not wither. And what I appreciate about that is, you know, we, we go outside, you look at the trees and, and all of that, and the leaves are withering, aren't they? And for like two weeks, it's like, oh, it's so pretty. And then it's just dead. Like we're around here for months. And it's like, oh, man, this stinks. And then the government decides, let's put our clocks back so it's darker earlier. <laughs> and then you'll be thankful for us when we change it back. And you'll think, you guys are the best, or whatever. And so you look at it, and they wither, and they fall to the ground. To here, they shall not wither. It, it speaks to, for the blessed man of God, life isn't cyclical. Like the, the tree, what's the term, science term? Etymology or something? I think I made that word up. There's not this cycle of this is how it works with trees here. There's a steadiness. I, somebody said this, all of God's trees are evergreens. They're evergreen. There's a steadiness that is found in the life of the godly man or woman. And so, yes, the seasons come and go, but the life of the man of God remains constant. And, boy, there's a lot of peace in that. Not the highs, not the lows, just the steadies as we just continue to move forward with the Lord. Notice what he says at the end of verse 3. In all that he does, he prospers. This conjures to mind, at least my mind, remember the, the story of the, the guy with the Midas touch, Greek legend, Roman legend or whatever, and the guy would touch and everything would become gold. And man, this guy had it made. Turned out it wasn't as good as he thought it might be here. That's not what is being said here. Doesn't mean that every circumstance we step into, Midas touch, it's going to be as good as gold here. It's not a universal promise of wealth or riches or comforts. If you walk more closely with God, you're going to prosper. It's not, that's not what it's saying here. Rather, it's a statement that in the life of the righteous man, God brings forth something good and wonderful out of every circumstance that individual finds himself in. And so that even in tough circumstances, he brings forth something that shall prosper in the life of the man or the woman of God. Paul said it this way. He said, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Our way shall prosper. You remember when Moses was passing off the scene, Joshua in many ways was coming on the scene, and God kind of passed the keys to the kingdom on to Joshua from Moses. Well, these were the words that the Lord said to Joshua in sort of this first comment. All right, you're the boss. Here we go. He says, Joshua, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only 
be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left in order that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written therein. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. God has given us the rules of prosperity and he's defined what prosperity is. And he's given us the rules to attain it, so to speak. Stay in the word. There it is. Pretty simple. But I want riches and cars and all of that. All right, well, then go see somebody else about that. But if you want to have peace and contentment and fulfillment and satisfaction and rest, stay in God's word. Meditate on God's word night and day and do not turn from it to the left or to the right. For as it says, then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Now the wicked. And that took me about 40 minutes to do the godly. We won't take 40 minutes to do the wicked. The wicked are not so, he says, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So remember the writing style of Hebrew poetry, one of them, are contrast, and that's what he does here. He contrasts the righteous with the wicked. He reverses the picture. He says in the beginning of the verse, the wicked are not so. They're not trees firmly planted. They're not trees that are bearing much fruit. They're not trees where the leaf never withers and they don't go through the cyclical change and, and so on. Rather, he says, they are like chaff. Chaff, easily driven by the slightest of the breeze. Now, maybe you're not familiar with chaff. Chaff is that light shell that was around a kernel of grain. And if you were going to enjoy the kernel of grain, you had to strip it of the light shell that was on the outside here before you could ground that grain into flour or whatever it might be. Now, chaff was light enough that it could be separated from the grain as by the simple action of tossing it up in the air and catching it because the pressure of the grain inside of the shell was enough to open the shell and the shell would kind of do this and the grain would kind of fall down. And so many times they would thresh the grain by tossing it up into the ground or they would hit it with you know, hay or whatever it might be um, there. We see in the New Testament an example of just how the average person would separate the wheat from the chaff in Luke chapter 6. You remember that story? It says, on a Sabbath while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what you shouldn't be doing on the Sabbath? But you see the picture. They would pull it. They would just do one of these kind of things, and then they would blow away the bad stuff, and the good heavy stuff would remain. And then they would eat it, the yummy stuff. That's how easy it is here for the chaff. That's how unstable the author here of the psalm describes the life that the wicked has built. That's how lacking in substance, you can just simply blow it away. That's what God says the ungodly are. Compare that or contrast that with the tree firmly planted. The one defies the storm. The other can't even 
defy someone just blowing lightly on it. Everything that is true about the godly man is not true about the ungodly man. He says, the wicked are not so. They are like the chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked may be having fun, right? Man, I'm living it up. They may be having fun, lots of smiles on Instagram and the like, but they're not truly happy. If God is to be believed, and I believe he is, I believe you believe that he is, they're not truly blessed. They're not bringing forth the fruit that their life was meant to bring forth, whether that be internally or externally. They're not teeming with life like the tree that is planted by the streams. The way of the wicked, it's not prospering, as God defines prosperity. Like chaff, they lack body and substance. And so when the storms of life blow, they prove themselves to be unstable. The wind drives them away. They have no foundation. They have no root system, as the godly individual has established over years and years and years and years of sitting under the counsel of God. And so it may often seem like the ungodly have all of those things. And sometimes it seems like they have more than righteous people do, but any of those things that they do have are fleeting. The life of the ungodly, they don't have any of those things at all. I think the prophet Jeremiah may have had this psalm in mind when he wrote this. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out <coughs> excuse me, its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green, and it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear its fruit. Remember Charles Dickens, you all know Charles Dickens? Everyone knows the Christmas Carol, I think, is coming up. That's another one, yeah. Uh, he had another famous one, The Tale of Two Cities. Anybody read it? Yeah. Who's the smart people here? Anybody? I don't know, it was Shakespeare. It was Shakespeare. Anyway, anyway, Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens had. We might compare this to Charles Dickens' uh, book here. This is a tale of a tree and a bush. Not the tale of two cities, it's the tale of a tree and a bush, or a shrub, as the passage here says. One, firmly planted. One, beside a perpetual source of life that's constantly bearing fruit in due season. The other, like a shrub in the desert. Or even worse than that, just like the chaff. Dry, dusty, absent from life, and from which, as it says, no good shall come. The psalmist, he goes on here, he says that the wicked shall not stand in the judgment. In that day, in the last day, the day of judgment, when the wicked will come before God and stand before God to give an account of their life, we're told, that's in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. You can read it and see it. We're told that they will not stand. We're told they're powerless to stand. There's nothing that will allow them to stand. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, and the Lord knows the way of the wicked. The way of the righteous is blessed. The, way, the result of the way of the wicked, they will perish. 
He begins with the word blessed. He ends the psalm with the word perish. Again, I'm reminded of the book of Joshua, this time at the end of the book. And he said this, If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that were served in the region beyond the river, that your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As we look at this particular psalm, there is a way that leads to life, and there is a way that leads to death. There is a, li a life that is built on the counsel of God, and there is a life that is built absent of God. There is a life that leads to a life of blessing and fruit for what you were created to be and to do, and there is a life that results in perishing and destruction. And so with Joshua, choose you this day whom you will serve. Now, many of us in this room are Christians. We're believers. We've come to the cross. You're raising how nice. Uh, you've come to the cross of Christ. You've recognized that you've sinned and that your sin separates you from a holy God and you've begun your relationship with him. Fantastic. That's part of why you're here in the church because you recognize the important place that that experience has played in your life and the church adds to your life. So for you, that's who I want to speak to. For those, I'm a Christian, I've been a Christian for a long time or a short time, but I'm a Christian, I know it. Good. Are you living your life in such a way where you pay mind to God throughout your day? Are you living your life in such a way where you look to the counsel of God to apply to your life or are you just sort of going through the motions, not even aware of what path you're on to begin with? The blessed life comes from a life that is fixed on him. And I encourage you, practice the presence of God every moment of your life and do that for the rest of your life. And when we come to the end of our, your days, our days, and we're doing your funeral or you're doing my funeral, we'll be able to look, this guy, this gal built their life on God and the word of God. And man, boy, they were blessed. Boy, they prospered. Are you with me? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for that reality. Lord, just kind of to pull back, we, we get overwhelmed, I think, sometimes with the world in which we live and all the things that are coming at us and the decisions we need to make and the direction it is going. And Lord, just to take some time this morning to sort of pull back and see things from the big picture of heaven and to see things from the way you see them, that there's a way that leads to blessing and there is a way that leads to a cursing. There's a way that produces much fruit, and there's a way that is just simply blown away by the wind. But we want to be people that honor you. We want to know and experience and walk and live in that rest and that peace and that comfort that comes from being in right relationship with you. Draw our hearts to yourself. Lord, if there are areas that we need to be challenged about the decisions we make, the places we go, the things we listen to, then challenge us in that, Lord. If we're on the right path, Lord, keep us on that path. So we pray our prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen.